as I was sitting down and getting all comfortable, I thought, oh, now I can take off my glasses and have a nice meditation period. And I was like, oh, no, I guess not. <laughs> I got to give the talk. <laughs> you guys are lucky you get to meditate. So tonight's talk is uh, better than, less than, and equal to. Buddha's thoughts on mana. So tonight I'd like to talk about the, the Pali word mana. It's usually translated as conceit. Um, perhaps a better translation that I've heard that may even be um, more accurate is measuring. So it's the conceit of I am, any creating of the sense of self, especially in comparing ourselves to others, measuring ourselves against others, or comparing or measuring ourselves against some ideal that we may have. The conceit, I am. It makes me think of a, I have to tell you, a a self-joke that I saw. It had a picture of a guy in front of a computer screen, and underneath it said, I Google myself, I get a hit, therefore I am. (laughs) And I was thinking of social media. Social media are like mana machines, mana creating machines. So the translation of conceit, usually we would think of that as just um, feeling superior to others. Uh, But in Buddhism, there's three kinds of conceit. There's the feeling better than others, feeling worse or less than others, and feeling equal to others or to some ideal. So all three of these involve comparing ourselves with others, measuring ourselves against others, and in this process, strengthening a sense of self. Conceit or mana makes the case for an independent, permanent, separate self. And when mana is present, we can feel the sense of self congealing, right? When we're comparing ourselves to others, we can feel that um, strong sense of separation. And we can feel, actually, we talked about this a little bit this morning, we can feel the the prison of self, the the, um, contraction of self. So we might also notice mana in a number of mind states that can arise. Jealousy, judging, low self-esteem, pride, arrogance. Either way, feeling less than, feeling better than, or even feeling equal than, equal to, um, is considered suffering. All three perpetuate the dualism of self and other, and all of them create suffering within and outwardly. Mana arises when we strongly identify with some experience of mind or body, taking it to be me, mine, 
something permanent, not seeing clearly. So it's a manifestation of delusion. It comes out of and it reinforces um, wrong view, the view that self is permanent, separate, and independent. In the Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha talks about taking the five aggregates to be self in this way. If one regards themselves superior or equal or inferior by reason of the body, that is impermanent, painful, and subject to change, what else is this than not seeing reality? If one regards themselves superior or equal or inferior by reason of feelings, perceptions, volitions, or consciousness, what else is this than not seeing reality? If one does not regard oneself superior, equal, or inferior by reason of the body, the feelings, perceptions, volitions, or consciousness, what else is it than seeing reality? So pointing towards the strong delusion that is present when mana is present. So for example, let's say we have a strong body and we take a lot of pride in that. We feel like we're better than others because of that. So we're identifying with the body with physical form, as me. And there's not recognition that it's impermanent, dependently arising, easily changed, uncontrollable, might be strong now, but who knows what will happen. If nothing else, at least we will get older. When I was writing this talk, I got a message, I got my, my car insurance uh, bill, and I got a message that I was a perfect driver. And it was so interesting when I saw that, you know, it was related to what I had to pay, but when I saw that, I actually had some moments of mana. I could feel like I got a little puffed up. I was like, oh. <laughs> of course, we all know that's impermanent. <laughs> One ticket, and there you go, you're not a perfect driver anymore. In Theravada Buddhism, we talk about four stages of enlightenment, and it's said that at each stage of enlightenment, uh, a fetter or a bondage of the heart and mind uh, drop away. So mana doesn't go till the very end, to the fourth stage, full enlightenment. So it goes even after greed and aversion have have, uh, dropped away. That's how deep it is. So... It's a very deep form of selfing. So instead of talking about how we can get rid of it, because it's probably going to be around for a little while anyway, perhaps we can talk about how to relate to it when it arises in a way that doesn't cause further bondage of heart and mind, that doesn't strengthen mana, but rather begins to loosen, and you could say disempower, this pattern of thinking and viewing reality. One reason I think that perhaps this pattern of thinking is so deeply ingrained is that 
um, it has an evolutionary function. That's why it's so deep. We're tribe animals. And in a tribe, you want to know where you stand. You want to know where you stand related to other people. It's necessary for safety, for shelter, for food. In our early evolution as humans, if you got kicked out of the tribe, you died. You couldn't survive on your own. So in a tribe, you need to know what others are thinking to make sure that your behavior is at least acceptable enough to be included in the tribe and hopefully more than just acceptable, successful enough to get the goodies. They've done uh, studies. I read a book. It said they've done studies about um, what the human mind does when it's not task-oriented, when it doesn't have a task to complete. And it said that it goes into this social cognition network that I think is very related to mana. It goes into um, trying to understand where one's place is in the social network and they said that they have done studies um, brain scans of babies and that at two days old they already manifest this kind of social cognition network functioning that's how deep it is and perhaps for some of you um, interviews with your teachers are stressful and it may be because of mana right so we have an interview coming up, and, and um, we're concerned. Uh, how will the teacher see us? Will, we be, will our report be good enough? Will we measure up in some way? A lot of energy can go into planning interviews, re- rehearsing them afterwards, remembering them. Maybe you can just name it mana, lots of mana. So I'll talk a little bit about each kind of conceit. Mostly we'll use a Buddhist framework, but I might bring in a couple of ideas from Western uh, psychology to help us understand. So the first one, superiority conceit, feeling better than others. Most people at some time or the other find this kind of thinking present. Happens easily on retreat, right? We're checking each other out, (laughs) trying to see where we fall in our um, hierarchies in our mind of being a good yogi or not so good yogi. We have all kinds of ways that we measure ourselves against other yogis, how long we sit, whether we move or not, whether we can sit in lotus posture, how long we stay on the breath, The other day, how long did you do standing meditation? Did you sit down before most people or did you stand the whole time? Stay up later, get up earlier, eat less, take few breaks, walk more slowly. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I hear, I hear about competitions, um, like who stays in the hall the latest. Or who gets to the hall the earliest in the morning? In my early retreats, I think I've mentioned this, I was super yogi. 
And I often had superiority conceit. I would um, compare myself to other yogis and feel like I was doing better. And um, there's a lot of judgment in it. And uh, years later, when I told, when my teacher told me to um, be a bad yogi, quote unquote, bad yogi, <laughs> when she told me to um, sit not very much and not do much formal walking, but basically to be very laid back, um, I suddenly found myself um, doing everything that I had judged others for doing. And what was interesting about this. When I judged other yogis, when we judge other yogis, sometimes we'll find a certain kind of, like we can feel if we really pay attention to kind of hardness of heart. <laughs> and often what it, or not often, but sometimes what's happening is we're projecting what we call our psychological shadow onto somebody else. The parts of ourselves that we can't see, that we can't relate to. And so what I realized um, later on was that uh, I actually... When I was judging other yogis who I perceived as more lazy, I actually wanted to be lazy, but I wouldn't allow myself to be lazy. So I, I projected that onto others. And the reason why I judged people who took more breaks or drank more tea was because I wanted to do that. It can be interesting to look at what we judge others for and to, to um, perhaps see our own unrecognized traits or yearnings. The delusion of superiority conceit consolidates the self behind a protective shield, a shield of denial and projection of our shadow side. And it really shuts down the conversation, the possibility that we can grow and open and learn. It has a certain closed-minded quality to it. But when we meditate, if we pay attention and if we stay curious, the shield gets penetrated. It's, it's hard to keep up the appearance of superiority too long when you do a meditation retreat. That's good. That's lucky. We need help because there's so much delusion and superiority conceit. I want to make a distinction between superiority conceit and a healthy appreciation of our own strengths and our own growth. The difference is that with a healthy appreciation, there's a kind of open-heartedness, not a stinginess of heart. With superiority conceit, there's a stinginess of heart. There's this tension, this stingy heart that wants just recognition for ourselves. But with healthy appreciation, we're not comparing to others. We're just appreciating ourselves. There's a sense of contentment, satisfaction, healthy self-respect, happy to be shared, don't need to keep it just for us. Oh, perhaps we look back on our practice and say, oh, you know, I'm kinder than I used to be. And that kind of recognition of our growth or strength can actually be wholesome. It can be useful. It can energize us for practice. 
or looking at a day of practice, say, oh, you know, I really put in full effort today. And you can feel a sense of satisfaction um, that's actually energizing and helpful. So what to do when um, mana, when we notice mana or conceit or specifically right now superiority conceit, but it's pretty similar across the other two. The first thing is just name it. Isn't that always the first thing? Be on the lookout, name it. Like Mara, when it's seen, it begins to lose its power. Naming it, we can start to not identify with it. The problem isn't so much that it arises. The um, suffering comes from the identification with it. So we see it. I wrote this talk a few years ago when I was on retreat. And I was on retreat in um, Chaswa in Burma, where Greg and I go a lot. Um, so I was on retreat, and, and uh, most of the yogis knew that I was a teacher. <laughs> and so I felt uh, at times a little bit of pre- pre- pressure to uh, look good. Um, <laughs> And so in Burma, when you go in the dining room, you all go together. So you you line up and you go into the dining room together and you chant before you eat and you all start eating at the same time. So there's this thing, right? Like, who leaves the dining room first? Who leaves the dining room last, right? Same kind of um, comparing thing. So for me, I'm very energized in the morning. Love, you know, did very more kind of detailed eating meditation in the morning. But at lunchtime, I didn't quite have the energy for that. So one day I got up, and I was the first person to leave the dining room. And I was walking out, and I had this thought, oh, the yogis are going to think that I'm not mindful. And then, this is is the um, inner hustler part of superiority conceit. Superiority conceit, Mana came up and it said, Actually, I'm better than the rest of them because they're afraid to leave the dining room and face the long afternoon because that's it in Burma, you know, like 1130, that's it on the entertainment for food. (laughs) And so it was so funny just to watch this like little inner hustler (laughs) superiority conceit come up with a story that made me look good. Fortunately, I I didn't feel um, particularly um, identified with that, that thought. I actually thought it was kind of funny. Superiority conceit will um, twist and invent anything. It's always working the best angle. And what it will often use for comparing, of course, is something that we um, feel is one of our strengths. But it's really all stories. It's stories, stories, stories. We start to recognize that. We can name it. Name it, let it go. Did I tell you guys about the retreat where I was judging everybody all the time? I can't remember if I mentioned that here. Uh, Okay. Anybody else have that experience sometimes? 
So I had this one retreat where, um, many years ago, where I, I went through this period where I was judging. It felt relentlessly, especially when I was up moving around the center. I would, it seemed almost every yogi that came by, I had some um, negative judgment of. Because this is the other side of superiority conceit, right? Is that we judge others as less than. You know, look at how that person walks. Don't they know they should be walking quieter? Look how much food they take. They shouldn't be eating so much on retreat. Look at how they dress. They're trying to look pretty. And, you know, just on and on. And um, I wasn't feeling very good about myself noticing this. So I, um, it, it went on for quite a, it felt like at least a week. It was very intense. So I go in to talk to my teacher happened to be Joseph, and I went into Joseph, and I was going on and on about kind of how bad a person I was because I had all these judgments of other people, and, and uh, you know, it was going on and on, and so he kind of listens, and then when I stopped, he says, it's just a thought. You know, this was like 20 years ago, and I still remember it because I was just, oh, <laughs> it's just a thought. And that switched everything for me. So, you know, the thoughts were still arising, some, but it was just a thought. It wasn't a problem. And I really got this identification thing in that moment. It's like when I identify with judging thoughts of other yogis or other people, it, it can be problematic. It can cause bad vibes and wars and everything, it can be a problem, right? But when I don't identify with it, it's just a thought. It's just a thought. Comes, goes, no problem. So these mana stories, you know, can be a thought. It comes, it goes, no problem. Another technique, so one is naming it... um, Noticing it as a thought. Another technique is to realize the impermanence of what we're identifying with. Like taking on the identity of the perfect driver. Impermanent. Strong body, that'll change. Intelligence, well, anybody who gets to my age starts to feel... (laughs) <laughs> can't remember things, an eight-year-old can do a computer better than me, and actually probably a six-year-old is the truth. <laughs> Health, that's not going to last. Youth, arrogance of youth, they say, that'll go. <laughs> we recognize that all of the, um, anything that we take refuge in as um Ourself is impermanent. It's not going to last. And given that it's impermanent too, it's also dependently arisen. We can see that it, it, we're not separate, that, that, that what we are is um, a process that's dependently arisen, that um, is um, interdependent with many, many causes and conditions. So where do we kind of pull ourself out as something that deserves praise, pull some self out as something that deserves praise? And then um, a third way of working with superiority conceit is to feel the suffering of it. 
the narrowing and the separation, to feel the pain, painfulness of it. Most untrained worldlings, as the Buddha called them, people who haven't meditated, um, think that superiority conceit feels good. It's generally considered to be somewhat pleasant. And there is a way on the surface that it does have, um, it's, that I was mentioning that sense of kind of expansiveness, maybe upliftedness. So it does have pleasant elements. And I think that those can hide the dukkha in superiority conceit. I mean, sometimes the, the expansiveness of superiority conceit is basically the relief that in the comparing, we haven't come down on the side of less than. If we look deeply, we see that this kind of conditioning is quite painful. First of all, there's a sense of separation. The heart contracts. It's lonely, actually. And we also see that its root, in its root, it contains the flip side. It contains, it's, it's almost like trying to keep at bay the flip side, the feeling that we're worse than. So it's slippery. It needs a lot of maintenance. That's part of the stress. It hopes to keep the worse than feeling at bay, so it's a lot of maintenance to do so. I found that seeing the pain and the feelings of superiority conceit are, is a helpful way to break that conditioning. It's actually easier for many people to start with looking at superiority conceit rather than inferiority conceit. So like with inferiority conceit, which I will talk about, that sense of being worthless or not good enough or the inner critic, all of that, sometimes that's so sticky, right? The identification is so strong. It's like we can practice on superiority conceit. We can practice on um, kind of breaking the conditioning of believing superiority conceit. And as we practice breaking the conditioning of believing that, then when inferiority conceit arises, we've already strengthened this quality of non-identification, of, of not getting ensnared in it. So you can transfer the, <laughs> transfer the learning. And when, we talked about this this morning a little bit, when awareness sees, our mindfulness sees the, the, the suffering, um, it starts to consider the option of letting go, of releasing. If we just notice superiority conceit as pleasant, we, we're not going to let go of it if we see the suffering um, it starts to look like not such a great deal anymore.
Another form of superiority conceit is feelings of superiority that are culturally conditioned based on class, race, nationality. I'm better because of my socioeconomic class or my race or what country I'm from. We can clearly see that this um, easily leads to lots of suffering, the forms of racism and nationalism, classism, can cause intense suffering, violence, wars. And often these feelings, um, these culturally conditioned feelings of superiority, they often play off of that inflated feeling that I talked about. hiding the insecurity that's underneath, um, uh, uh, keeping, like infusing that inflated feeling that has some sense of expansiveness and pleasantness, right? So those are blatant forms, um, racism, nationalism, classism, and then there's subtler forms of of culturally-based superiority conceit. And the subtler forms are when the cultural values of the dominant race or the dominant class become the standard that is unconsciously accepted as the best. So, for example, I think sometimes about this in the United States. Individualism and independence are kind of unquestionably... um, accepted as high standards or the highest standards or the way things should be based more in um, white Caucasian values or or middle class, upper middle class values. In gen- I'm generalizing here the dominant values. Obviously, everybody's different within each group. But what happens sometimes then, or what can happen, is that other values such as interdependence, community, might be undervalued. So there's a way that, that it's sometimes it's called internalized racial superiority or internalized class superiority. It's a way that um, when this conditioning is really strong that, that um, we're limited we're limited in our development by being bound by the um, conditioning, the dominant conditioning. And when our communities are more diverse, there's an um, opportunity for us all to grow in um, letting in and considering and um, learning from values that might not be the ones that uh, have been dominant. For example, every year I um, teach a Spanish language retreat in California. And so this retreat has very much, um, it doesn't have... It has, it's very much dominated by Latino values. 
And so um, at the end of this retreat, one, the kitchen manager who was um, not Latina, she was a white woman, we had this go around at the end, and she said, I so loved this retreat. She said, it's just so beautiful for me to be part of this. She said, one thing that I noticed is that um, the yogis, uh, vegetable chopping yogis on this retreat, without talking to each other, they all chopped the vegetables the same size. She said, in the retreats that mostly have white people in them, they all chop them the size they think it should be. <laughs> she said, my job is so much easier because I don't have to go through and chop them again. <laughs> now I know your veggie choppers are going to have a complex tomorrow. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> It was like she got a chance to um, um, be embedded in a, in a different cultural milieu, and, um, and uh, it was heartwarming and heart-expanding for her to have that experience. So with superiority conceit, it's so important that we each look into our own hearts and minds. When do we feel superior to others? Can we bring mindfulness to this? Where may our hearts be hardened to the suffering of others? Because this is another part of superiority conceit, is that it hardens our heart to seeing the suffering of others. You could say our heart gets the compassion, the natural compassion in our hearts gets barricaded behind the, 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 the conditioning. Where may we unconsciously have feelings of superiority without realizing it that block us to a diversity of views and experience? And we do this exploration with mindfulness and kindness not out of self-condemnation, a common detour when we judge ourselves for having uh, this kind of conditioning. So often there's a tendency to want to condemn ourselves, which in some ways is just more mana. <laughs> but we, we can do this um, exploration from a place of curiosity and kindness and actually tasting and seeing the expansiveness of heart and mind that comes when we're not bound by this conditioning. Another manifestation of uh, superiority conceit can happen any time on a retreat, but especially in the later days of a retreat, is that we start to evaluate our practice. Did we measure up to that high ideal that we had? Did we accomplish something? Will we have something to show for ourselves when we leave here? And underneath is the, so I'm worthy, so that I'm good, good enough, right? We have fantasies of telling our friends of all of our insights, and they're going to be so impressed by how enlightened we got on the retreat, or or we might be worried that they won't be.
I have bad news. It's never quite as good as you imagine it's going to be. <laughs> they don't really want to hear kind of your amazing experience with tasting a full bite of chilaquiles or... <laughs> And then related to this can be a sense of striving, right? The hope of striving that we can get something that will make us be okay. Many yogis are coming to the limits of their expectations and their ideals. One yogi today said, and I've heard variations on the same sentence recently, she said, I really wanted something else. Or yogis have said things such as, is it really like this? <laughs> like I thought, you know, it was going to be more controllable. <laughs> I thought it was going to look better than this, right? And I think excellent wisdom. Cutting through delusion to truth. This is the way things are. It's kind of humbling, but in a good way. I'll get to that later. Let's move on to the flip side, feeling less than. So most of us are familiar with this, feeling inferior, not good enough, not up to par with others, the inner critic, the inner judge, It can be quite intense, right? And as we um, identify with these thoughts, it can bring really a sense of despair or resignation, hopelessness. It can really undermine our practice as it kind of saps our energy. We typically don't think of feeling less than is a kind of conceit. But it is. It's a kind of um, expansion of the sense of self. Just as when we're feeling better than others, when we're feeling worse than others, we are strengthening a story of who and what we are. We're taking some aspect of um, experience and identifying with it as me and as mine. So in this way, both feeling better than and worse than are a kind of um, selfing, a contraction around the sense of self. That's why it's called also called conceit in Buddhism. So the task with this conditioning is also to become mindful of it and to learn how to not get quite so identified with it. It's very, um, I find that inferiority conceit is very tenacious and very seductive, right? It seems to be protective. Its job seems to protect us. If we go back to the tribe, its job is to keep us small enough, perhaps, that we don't get, um, that we don't attract the anger or wrath of others. (laughs) 
Or sometimes it seems like the inner critic is hoping to kick us into high gear enough that we'll get into the superiority side of the, of the equation. It's kind of like an over-involved coach. You know, look at the, you know, those coaches that are abusive thinking that will motivate the players. It's brilliant. The inner critic is brilliant. Seems to know exactly where to get, where to point to, um, to do its job. It doesn't like vulnerability. So if the inner critic or the inferiority conceit, inferiority mana is um, very strong, um, overwhelming, we're believing it, we might have to just start with setting limits with it, like you would set limits with a bully. No thanks. Conditioning comes up, the stories start about what's wrong with us and what we aren't doing or should be doing. No thanks. Or sometimes I like to use, thanks for sharing. (laughs) End of story. Anytime you try to negotiate with this kind of energy, the inner critic energy, um, you're going to (laughs) lose. Because it's brilliant. So it's really about ending the game. No thanks. Okay. Or hello, Mara. When we trust that we can, you could say when we trust that we can protect ourselves from that conditioning, that we know how to take care of ourselves when it arises, then we can get curious about it. We can turn towards it. How does it feel? What are its beliefs? What stories does it tell? How much are we identifying with those stories? How much are we believing them? Something to cut through the identification. So sometimes we get, it's helpful to get creative with the inner critic. This is not Vipassana, what I'm going to tell you now, but I found it useful. Uh, many years ago when I was in college, actually, before I started meditating, I, I worked a lot with this um, very critical energy or conditioning. And with the therapist, I came up with this image that to me kind of epitomized this energy. And it was of this tribunal with seven old judges. They all had their white wigs on, like those judges of old, and they all had their little gavels. They'd be pounding their gavels. And so when I, when I would criticize, when I would hear the criticism, the self-criticism, I would bring that image to mind. And it was so funny that it helped um, cut the identification with that story. So sometimes it's helpful to kind of insert something, to cut the identification, to bring in some space. And if it can be humorous, better yet. Sometimes, like with superiority conceit, 
feeling the pain of inferiority conceit can be helpful. Sometimes for some people it absolutely doesn't work because sometimes it can, you know, send you down the rabbit hole. (laughs) If that's true, don't try this one. But I know for me, sometimes if I could actually feel viscerally the pain of that inner critic, that conditioning, at a certain point I would start to feel compassion for myself and would not want to do it anymore. And it wouldn't be like, I don't want to do this anymore because I hate it. It would be like, I don't want to do this to myself anymore. It would come from a place of compassion and wisdom. But that's kind of, that's the intense way. <laughs> so if, it, if, it, if it's too intense, don't do it, please. <laughs> And then lastly, sometimes we can notice what causes and conditions trigger this conditioning so that we can be on the lookout for it. Some of you probably know this. There's a certain thing that happens during the day here. And um, one yogi was telling me in an interview, a teacher started talking about continuity and he knew, he said, okay, here, it's going to come here. That, <laughs> you know, the inner critic's going to be here. It's right ready for this one. And um, so if you know, like, where it's likely to be conditioned to rise, sometimes we can be kind of ready for it. Ready to see it before the story gets too involved. I've noticed that for me, so I've worked with this a lot, it's, changed a lot it still can come up and I've noticed that it comes up when I feel vulnerable for whatever reason when I feel vulnerable and so my main technique these days is like oh I feel vulnerable and vulnerability is okay if we can do vulnerability then we don't need the inner critic so much it's like I can do vulnerability okay Let's move on to equal to. On one level, this uh, conceit of equal to others, it can seem kind of helpful. It's like, okay, we're all the same, we're all in this together, so that there's not that kind of sense of separation with other people, right, in it. So there's not that obvious suffering that the other two Show, but there's still this sense of um, separation in that there's still a, a sense of self that is arising. There's still the comparison. We're still in the game. We're still in the measuring or comparing game. And in that sense, there's, there is dukkha or stress and equality conceit. There's also the possibility that when we look at ourselves as equal to others, that we're not really being authentic. That we're valuing ourselves in relationship to what others think of us rather than really trusting 
ourselves and our unique path. Practice helps us to settle more deeply into the truth of our own unique lives in addition to the truth of the human condition. And as we learn to come back over and over again to our own experience, you could say that we learn a certain kind of trust in it. What is the truth of this heart, body, mind, right now in this moment? In some ways we're asking that question over and over again. We're coming back to that over and over again. And we learn that it's just as it is. It's not better than or equal to or less than anybody else's experience. It's life manifesting causes and conditions. We learn not to identify so much with the stories. We see that we are our own crazy, idiosyncratic eccentric self, beautiful. Less identifying with mana, with measuring ourselves against others, placing ourselves with others, leads to the growth of the quality we could call humility. Sometimes there are associations with the word humility. Sometimes it's a little bit too close to humiliation. So maybe the word humbleness is better. Humility is a quality of great depth and freedom. Humility means a don't know quality of mind, a beginner quality of mind, a very receptive quality of heart and mind. One priest was asked, what's the most important thing that a person needs for the spiritual path? And he answered, the same thing you get from it, humility. We may mistakenly believe that humility is about being less than. I don't think so. I think it's about stepping out of the whole paradigm of comparing. That's the great freedom of this quality. We're freed from the pressure to be extraordinary, freed to be ordinary. Somebody once asked the Dalai Lama, do you have any peers? And he answered, yes, everybody. That's humility. One of my favorite poems, I probably read it every year in a different talk, Um, from um, Ryokan, the Japanese hermit poet, I think from the 1800s, or 1700s, 1800s. 
1700s. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of the Buddhist shrine talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. That's humility. (laughs) And we can sense, right, the great freedom in that. No posturing, no pretense, no striving. There's a lack of interest in shoring up the self and more of an interest in just playing the role that one has as best as one can and learning and developing as best as one can. One of my current heroines is um, Malala from Pakistan. Many of you have heard of her, a young woman uh, who has fought tirelessly for education of women and girls in, in an area of the world where it's not so popular. Um, she started when she was very young. I think when she was about 12, she was an activist. And uh, she got shot by the Taliban, almost died. Um, and uh, survived and is still still at it. She must be about 20, maybe by now, 19 or 20. Oh, she was 11 years old when she was blogging about uh, education for women when she survived her assassination attempt. And um, somebody, this is from National Geographic, they asked her, what gave you the courage to speak up for girls? My parents were always there to say that I have this right to speak. I have this right to go to school. If other girls in the Swat Valley, including some of my very close friends, had been given this right by their families, we would have been there together speaking out for girls' rights to go to schools. What I really mean is that I'm not a special girl who is different than others. There were many girls who were there who could speak out better than me, who were more forceful than me, but nobody allowed them. I love the humility and the understanding, you could say, the understanding that um, who and what we are comes out of causes and conditions. Uh, She said, I'm nobody special. It's just that the conditions came together for me to be able to do this. Humility. So humility, we, with humility, we lessen um, defensiveness and strategizing, release from posturing and comparing. Humility rests on a sense of total adequacy, which makes it possible to be open and releases so much energy that goes into mana. Humility recognizes that this spiritual path is a long road and constantly measuring our progress is fruitless, bound to lead to suffering. The task is to keep walking, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, and that is enough.
And as we connect more through practice with the truth of our experience, we develop this kind of humble authenticity. Practice is designed to do this. At a retreat that I was at, that my teacher was at, she said, practice is designed to make us humble. If you aren't being humbled, what are you doing here? We often hear, um, oh, I think it was Trungpa Rinpoche described practice as insult after insult. One teacher said we should stop being such professional selves and become more amateur selves. <laughs> We're also professional <laughs> about being a self, an amateur, more humble, open, curious. With some of the more enlightened beings that I've met, there's absolutely no sense that they care what you think about them. Even though they're pretty aware of social norms and stick more or less, more or less, to them. <laughs> one, uh, one of the monks that we like to visit in Upper Burma, um, he died a couple years ago. We called him the happy monk because he was so happy. And maybe Greg's told this story, I don't know, but once when Greg asked him about Donna, Greg was doing a talk on Donna, so he went and said, you know, tell us about Donna. So he started picking up these oranges that he had a bowl of oranges and he started throwing them at Greg. He's like, this is Donna. Everything here is Donna. And he was throwing oranges at Greg. <laughs> That's what I, I loved about him. He was so authentic. <laughs> and I think of Deepama who came here to teach um, uh, um, an Indian woman who uh, um, is also no longer alive. Uh, she uh, there was one time when they took her to the um, Boston Aquarium, and she was up. And she went up to the windows, and she was blessing all the fish. And then she would like bless airplanes, or she blessed everything. <laughs> and again, there was just this sense of she was just being authentically who she was in such a beautiful way. When we let go of conceit, of comparing ourselves with others, there's um, freedom grows in the heart and mind. And this quality of humility or humbleness and this quality of authenticity. And then we have the, this, our own unique authenticity to offer to this world as a gift to this world. Let's just sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.